Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you speakers meeting. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for today. Today is Sunday, October 7, 2012. OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain to recover from compulsive overeating and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. I will now call on Melanie to read the 12 steps, please. Hi, good morning. This is Melanie. I'm a compulsive overeater living here in Minnesota. Thank you so much for your service, Leah, and thank you for asking me to read this. The 12 steps. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable, Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thanks again, and I'll pass. Thank you. I will now call on Deb to read the 12 traditions, please. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Vision for You. This is Deb, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. The 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on OA unity. Two, for a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA names to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. 
seven. Every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or, committee, or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media for communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. Thank you. Again, welcome everyone to OA, a Vision for You speakers meeting. A speakers meeting is where we have invited a recovered compulsive overeater to share with us what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. After our speaker is done with her sharing, we will open the meeting up for question and answer period. And this morning, we are very grateful to have Katie with us to share. Please go ahead, Katie. Katie, you'll need to press star one to unmute. Okay, I had pressed star one, but there we go. Um, okay, I'm Katie, a compulsive overeater um, in Virginia on a dairy farm. If you want to picture where I am. Um, okay, I'm just going to tell what it was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. I was born on July 27th, 1960. I am the fourth of four girls. Uh, we live in Fairfax, Virginia, which is about 30 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. And I only have a few memories of my life prior to my parents' separation on June 29, 1968. So I was almost eight. My parents divorced, and I saw my dad a couple of times a year for the rest of my life. Um, I was mommy's little helper in the kitchen. I learned to cook and bake at a young age, and I loved it. My goal was to be able to eat whatever I wanted and to stop with small portions. But, of course, that never happened. I don't remember ever stopping when I was full or even considering it. Um, I was not the fattest kid in my class, and I know that because I always checked. When I got to school on the first day, I would look around the room, and if someone was fatter than me, well, then I just, I just didn't feel so bad. If I would only lose that weight, I would feel better be happier, enjoy life more. This was my mantra as far back as I can remember. Happiness was just beyond my reach, and I felt like I was looking through the glass of life, not quite good enough to be part of what everyone else seemed to have, although it wasn't apparent to someone looking at me. I appeared to be pretty happy, although I was kind of grouchy at times, and I'm sure that was from the food. I swam on the summer swim team, took ballet. I never got the hang of playing the piano because that required practicing, which I wasn't willing to do. Um, I managed to stay out of trouble in middle school, like can be such a bad time, but 
let's just back up. In fourth grade, I had my first boyfriend, and I was extremely uncomfortable with sexuality and all of that stuff, and it was not talked about much in my household. Four girls, single mother. I had no clue about boys and men, and this caused me a lot of heartache and good reasons to binge later on. But the mental obsession was starting to take root. I went on diets and tried to lose the weight, which at that point was probably about 15 pounds. On page 23 in the big book, it says, it talks about the insanity of the first drink, and that is what happened over and over again, that it wasn't a conscious decision. I always thought it would be temporary, a temporary setback, um, that tomorrow I would get right, right back on whatever diet I was on. But, of course, that never happened. Um, by the time I was 14, I had already been to a diet doctor who gave me a shot um, that I think was a hormone that was supposed to do something. I'm not even sure what it was supposed to do to my body. But um, I took these diet pills, which were really speed. You're supposed to take it at 11 in the morning. Once I forgot and took it at 3 in the afternoon and was up half the night doing my sewing project for um, uh, home ec class, and which is very comical if you know me because to this day, sewing is just not my thing. Um, so when I was 14, I somehow heard about OA, and my mom and a friend of mine went. I thought it was really stupid. I remember this woman whose name was Cookie, and I remember people talking about, this one woman talking about eating cucumbers and um, in between meals and spitting it out because it wasn't, you know, what she was supposed to be eating. And I thought that was just so dumb. Like, this is just a little eating problem. Um, so on I went. I didn't go back to OA. Um, and my weight at that time, probably the highest was 130. Um, and I was and still am five six three. Each year I would go on a diet and lose weight only to gain it back plus more. So by the time I went to college, my highest weight was 160. Um, I went to Virginia Tech because that was what two of my sisters had done, and I just thought I should go too. I was dating this really smart guy um, who was pre-med at UVA, and so my self-esteem at this point was just really low. I was drinking, eating out of control, and generally directionless. I no longer thought about enough about myself to really figure out what I wanted in life. So I did not do well at all at Virginia Tech. This spring semester, after once again going on a diet um, during the winter, I was down to 128 per day and shot back up to over 170 by the end of school. I hated myself and um, everyone else some of the time. That summer, I decided not to go back to Virginia Tech and instead went to Washington School for Secretary because I did have some memory of really wanting to be an administrative type person in an office. So my life seemed to be getting back on track and the food was no longer completely out of control because I was really busy with school and did well. The next summer, I went back to the diet doctor and got down to 125 for a couple of days. Then I started mostly binging eating very little in the way of regular meals and kept my weight sort of okay. It was 1980. On page 31, it says, neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. 
In some instances, there's been brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. Well, that's what happened to me again. I tried to lose back down to 125, back down to 125 because my clothes were tight. But it instead was eating the food on the diet plus binging. So I gained more weight instead of losing. Back up to 160. This time, going on a diet didn't work. So I found myself in September of 1981 looking through the phone book trying to find OA. I was 21. I went to a Saturday OA meeting in Northern Virginia, and this time it didn't seem so stupid. I was seeking God in my life, but I kept it a secret that I was going to OA. I kept my faith in God a secret from most of my world, and my life was very mixed up. I got a sponsor, and at that time, they gave out food plans, so I started committing my food every day. That lasted for about three weeks. Then I had an event I wanted to go to out of town that involved riding a bus, so I slightly deviated from what I had told her and justified my behavior as necessary because of the circumstances. This began a pattern of deception that followed me for the next five years. I did manage to lose some weight and did manage to work some of the steps, but as the business fit, Saved from Chapter 5, half measures availed us nothing, and that is what I got. But the adventure continued, and I did manage to have a slight awakening of my spirit, where I got honest with myself about my relationship and was given the insight, willingness, and courage to break up with my boyfriend of now three and a half years. Um, he had a promising future as a doctor, but I knew that there was something missing between us, and I broke up with him. But I failed to keep on a spiritual path and got worried about ever meeting Mr. Wright. So I filed downward with relationships, which led me back to the food. By this time, two of my sisters were married, and after 14 years as a single mom, my mother got married. I now had three grown stepbrothers and a 19-year-old stepsister. I was 22. My oldest sister and I decided to move to Hawaii. In the rooms of OA, I'd gotten back down to 1.30 for a day or two. The binging took over again, far worse than prior to OA, and I was up to 170 pounds four months later. I didn't want to believe that I was looking for a geographic cure when I moved to Hawaii, but if I got cured in the move, I would not complain. In Hawaii, I immediately connected with the OA community. Most people also went to AA um, so for social reasons, I too went to AA. I was still searching for how to surrender to this program, how to completely turn my will and my life over to the care of God, as it's necessary to take step three or even to get to step one. I was a spiritual person and started to think I was what the big book describes as constitutionally incapable of being honest. I talked for hours with OA friends about everything, and somewhere I got this idea that I needed to be doing with my life exactly what I wanted. Having this boring banking job was the problem, but I couldn't afford to quit that, so I had three jobs. I pursued baking. I thought if I could be the pastry chef baker that I always wanted to be, then I would happy, would be happy, and I, then I would be abstinent. I didn't know that I was putting God in a box, that I was willing to surrender on my terms, I had requirements and demands, which didn't work. I would have a few weeks of abstinence, and then something would happen. I would have no idea why I picked up the food. I was deluding myself to believe that as long as I did not eat sugar, I was okay, and also thought that membership in OA was enough. I wanted to be abstinent for good, but really didn't believe it was possible. 
After two years in Hawaii, we decided to move back to Virginia. I was still pursuing this idea that if my circumstances lined up just right, then I would be struck abstinent. I really didn't think my life or my eating could ever get worse, but it did. In October of 1986, I was making my first wedding cake. The bride wanted it to taste lemony, but not be yellow, so I had to make up the recipe. Easier said than done. I tasted the the batter, and this started a binge that lasted for almost a solid year. I would darken the doors of OA occasionally, but I thought I knew it all and had heard it all. I was less willing than ever. Every day, I would wake up and say, today will be different. Then I will go to a meeting and tell everyone how good I'm doing. But that never happened. On October 4th, 1987, I did my monthly weigh-in. That was what I'd learned to do in OA and thought if I started that practice, then maybe I would be abstinent. The scale bounced over 190. I gasped, jumped off the scale, and wrote on my calendar 186. I put a dollar sign in front of it in case someone came into my room and looked at my calendar on the wall and saw that and figured out it was my weight. Talk about an ego and self-deception. On or about October 5th, I called my, who had been my, the woman who had been my first OA sponsor in 1981. I still had her phone number memorized from six years earlier. I told her I was not okay, like I usually tried to say, um, that I was. I would run into her occasionally, and she, I would always act like everything was fine, even though, you know, I weighed 190 pounds and looked ridiculous um, and miserable. Um, I was making $7 an hour and working 60 to 70 hours a week. I didn't think I would possibly, possibly be off work to go to this meeting that she told me about. Um, but I took the information anyway. I got it. I ate everything in sight for the next two days, including my favorite binge food um, that one of my former roommates had in our community kitchen. I was 27 years old and lived in a townhouse with four other women. I got home from work on that Wednesday and did have time to get to that meeting. What I heard was astounding to me. It was as if the cotton had been taken out of my ears. I saw people who looked recovered, not just in their body sizes, because some of them were still losing weight, but in their demeanor and in their spirit. I asked someone to be my sponsor, and she said yes. I had no absence food in my house and no money, but what happened was I surrendered. And I was suddenly and miraculously able to stay absent in all uh, circumstances because the obsession was lifted. I went to the grocery store that night and bought abstinent food. I was among all my binge food at work. I was working in a restaurant as a caterer, prepping food all day, serving and cleaning up at catering events. I recoiled from the food that was not mine as if from a hot flame. A veil was lifted from my eyes and ears. Telling half-truths became a thing of the past. I had no idea at that time that I would stay absent one day at a time. I'd been in OA for six years. Each day I got stronger in my relationship with God and the weight came off. All of it. In August of 1988, my sponsor said, whatever you weigh tomorrow, that was my weigh day. That's it. That's your goal. You're thin enough. That day I weighed 120 pounds. Two days ago, on October 5th, 2012, I weighed myself. I weighed 120 pounds. And, you know, I know that it's not about the weight, but 
let's be honest, people come here to lose weight. And the, what happens is, is a miracle if you uh, allow it. So what is it like now? You may think, well, sure, she's thin and happy. That's easy. She had my problem. She would eat too. But that's not the way my life has been for the last 25 years. Um, a month after getting abstinent, I stood over my grandmother and watched her breathe her last breath. She was 89 years old. She was ready to go. But the hard part was, for me was going through that grief and going through um, the family of eating, eating event afterwards. I wasn't ready to tell anyone that I was, what I was doing with food. Um, and as it turned out, it snowed, and I went the, a bad way to get to my aunt's house. So by the time I got there, everyone was done eating, and they really could care less what I was eating or not eating. And I started to realize that things weren't really about me. No one cared what I ate as long as I didn't bother them. Um, slowly, my life changed. I did stay in that same job for a year and a half, but then... I started to want to do more than just work all the time. Um, I was encouraged um, to pursue, you know, my spiritual life more. So I got involved, more involved in my church and was offered an opportunity to go on some mission trips. And, you know, that meant uh, eating different from everyone else. Um, but, you know, the difference was I stopped making it about me, and I, and people really, they really don't care. <laughs> they really don't care what you eat or don't eat. Um, and I do not have this idea that what everyone else is eating is, is tempting. It's just God has just removed that from me. Um, so I went on some mission trips that it was very challenging. It wasn't... Um, it's not like it was easy, but one day at a time I got through it with the help of my fellowship and my higher power. Um, so I moved to Colorado after two years of abstinence, and I um, was there for a while, and I went to OA, and I, um, you know, just... I met some different people, but I was in a living arrangement that it made it very difficult to do just whatever I wanted to do. So, uh, but, you know, God carried me through that time, and eventually I did start a, a meeting, um, and I, this huge community built up around me, and it was just wonderful. I had really good friends, and, and we all, um, you know, just were recovering together. Now, one thing I uh, forgot about is, you know, when I came in, I was 27. I'd had my first boyfriend in fourth grade. So, you know, that's, uh, I was about nine or 10. And here I am, 28, and I still have not met Mr. White. And so after my first year of abstinence, I started dating, and I thought that I had met, you know, the one, and he wasn't. I mean, Spiritually, we were not on the same path at all. So, you know, we, it just did not work out. And um, I was very heartbroken. And I remember talking to someone and she said, you know, 
you're going to um, really change over the next five years, and it's probably better if you, you just don't even meet anyone. Well, I just wanted to hang up on her, but I, I didn't. And, um, but I really, I just didn't want to hear that. But I, I was, you know, just encouraged in these rooms to just keep doing the next right thing, um, to keep doing what God put in front of me. And so I did that, and I pursued my spiritual life, and I lived in Colorado, and, you know, I dated a lot of different people, but the things just were never, were never right. And um, <clears throat> while I lived there, my stepsister um, had uh, acquired HIV, and she had... Um, gotten into recovery. She was a drug addict and alcoholic, and she'd been in recovery for a few years, and was, her life was really turning around, but it was, it, um, but she died um, when I was in Colorado, and, you know, that was very painful, but that was when I really started to actually feel my feelings. You know, I was feeling my feelings before in recovery, but somehow, um, that is the time frame when I remember just really feeling so dependent on God because I, you know, nobody out there knew her. Um, they didn't understand what I was going through, and I really had to depend on God, and I started feeling my feelings so that now, you know, I'm like what I consider regular people are, that if they see a Hallmark commercial, you know, they tear up and and cry a little, and, you know, before that, I mean, I never cried, ever, and um, so I'm feeling like, you know, I was starting to feel like I was getting some emotional balance, but that was a very difficult thing to go through um, her death, and so I stayed in, um, in Colorado for another year after that, and then I moved back to Virginia. I just woke up one day and was like, you know, I don't even know why, but I just felt like I was just done with living so far away from any family. But I didn't want to go back to um, Northern Virginia and the D.C. area because of all the traffic and all the people and um, not so much the people because Denver's crowded, but the uh, just the traffic. I just did not want to go back to that life. So I was talking to one of my friends um, in L.A., and she, um, I knew that she had moved. I didn't even know where she lived because I was just calling. She had an 800 number at her work. And so I had decided to move back, back to Virginia, and I said, now, where are you moving again? And um, she was living in Charlottesville. And my sister, one of my sisters, married sisters, lived outside of Charlottesville. And so I decided to see if I could go live with them. And they, um, so, you know, have abstinence, will travel. I was able to, you know, take my program anywhere that I went. And I moved to, back to um, Virginia, and I lived with my sister, it was very crowded in their little house. So I ended up staying at my parents' house a lot, and kind of, which was an hour away, and was kind of had one foot in that 
world of Fredericksburg and one foot in the Charlottesville area. And um, I met a few different people and, you know, I was kind of torn about where I should be because it sounded like a really great idea when I left Colorado, but when I got here, I was just really distraught. I just thought, what in the world? You know, here I've been asking him for five years. You know, I still am single. And, you know, by this time I was 33, I just thought, you know, it wasn't fair. Like, why can't I meet someone? Why can't I, you know, have children and, and have my own life like I want? And, um, you know, at 33 years old, I'm living in this little tiny room in my sister's house with her husband and three children. But, you know, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, and I did, um, I met this guy. He had this really, you know, important-sounding job with the government, and uh, he asked me out, and I just knew there was no spiritual connection there. So I said, no, I'm going back to Charlottesville. And I came back and lived with my sister and got a job. And uh, this guy called, and my brother-in-law had been, like, showing my picture to people and said, you know, uh, my sister-in-law is coming to live with me. i got to find her a husband. And, you know, it's, ha, 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 that's so funny. Well, this one guy called me, and um, so he sounded really nice. But then as we were talking... It turned out he was separated. He'd been married for almost 10 years, and he had a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And I was like, no way, you know. And I really felt like God said, you know, you can't get involved in that. So as nice as he sounded, the next time he called me, I said, I, I can't go out with you. I'm sorry. And when I hung up, I cried, and I just felt like I was just ripping my heart out but I did feel like I was following what God was telling me to do. And, you know, these are all of these things I would have eaten over. Every single event that has happened in my life, every day of my life, I have something that comes up that in the past I would have eaten over. And, you know, one day at a time, God has shown me that I don't have to do that and has pushed me forward into you know, doing the next right action. Um, so he, this guy asked if he could keep calling me, and, you know, I had this job I took. It was an administrative job, but it was a law, I was working for a law firm that was merging with another law firm, and so it was a lot of work, and I worked about 50 hours a week. And um, we had this wicked winter that year. It was 1980, the winter of 94, so we had all these ice storms in Virginia, and it was just crazy, but um, he would call me every now and then. I told him he could call me, and so he offered to come, and, you know, my car, like, ran off the road in my sister's neighborhood, and he offered to come and, you know, pull it out for me, and I was like, no, 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 you know, and so in about March, he first started calling me in December, um, he asked my sister if she thought I would go out with him. And and she said, well, I don't know, maybe. 
And um, so I did agree to go out with him, and we got married nine months later. And during my time as um, being abstinent, and after I got to my goal weight, I stopped having my period. Um, I would have one, you know, like once a year or something. And so, you know, I would sought some medical attention, but, you know, really, who doesn't? <laughs> who cares if they don't have their period if they don't want to? So I, you know, they assured me it was uh, not hurting me, and I just, it was kind of nice. Um, but I was told that if I ever wanted to have children, it might be difficult and I might need help. So with that in mind, um, when we got married, we uh, had not had sex before marriage. <clears throat> and um, I got pregnant on my honeymoon. So I went from being a city girl in Denver to living on a dairy farm in the middle of a field of 860 acres with a four-year-old and a two-year-old daughters who we had visit, we had custody of, um, joint custody, so we had them every other week, um, pregnant, working full-time, and those were all the kind of things that, you know, I heard people talk about in the rooms, you know, being a housewife and drawing the drapes and eating, you know, watching TV and binging all day, so... You know, I had this big fear of ever having that kind of life, and yet I had it, you know, and I didn't have to, I didn't have to go back to the food. Um, it says, on, you know, in the, in the promises that if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness, and that's what I have enjoyed for these 25 years. In the midst of chaos, you know, sometimes there's complete chaos in my life. But that doesn't mean that I have to be chaotic. Um, it says that we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Well, I just would like to spend the remainder of my time just talking about the different ways that these promises have come true in my life. Um, I, I would say that the thing that I will not regret the past and wish to shut the door on it is in my relationship with my father. I was able to mend that relationship, um, at least on my end. You know, he never treated me like he didn't like me when I was around him. Um, he did say a few mean comments about my weight when I was little that I never forgot. But um, he just sort of had a bit of a dry sense of humor and a bit of a biting edge to them. Um, but for the most part, I mean, we, you know, I had a relationship with him. And so when he died in 2004, I did not have any regrets about what I had done. I'd done everything I could do. You know, he didn't want me, once is not even the right word, he didn't choose to have me in his life on a regular basis. And you know, so that that was his loss. Um, the next one is, we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Well, I can wake up a lot of times in the middle of the night and not feel at peace. 
I mean, especially right now, I have two teenagers um, plus my two stepchildren. They have now grown to be 22 and 20. My son just turned 17, and my daughter is 14. Um, I had to go through a miscarriage between the two children. Um, and I went through pregnancy. You know, I went through gaining all that weight. And, you know, you always tell people, oh, it's just a baby. Well, you know what? For someone like me, it's... <laughs> For anybody, I think, as I've been pregnant and talked to women, it doesn't feel that way when you're the one with the big body and it feels like it's never going to, you know, you're never going to have your body back or your life back. But um, but you do. And that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. You know, I, well, I just started to say when I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, and can have lost my serenity and lost my peace, you know, I say the serenity prayer. My first reaction is to pray. And, you know, it used to be that my first reaction was to get up and eat a frozen cookie because that's what I did. And I even have binge foods in my house because I live in a family and I don't have to cover it up or hide it or not buy it because of me, because of my eating uh, requirements. I can I can live among the foods. Um, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Well, you know, I still work, and I, I did stay home for um, seven years. I, I did not work full-time for seven years, and I was able to, um, you know, just give myself to my family. I mean, I couldn't have done that if I was still on food. I would have, it just, it just, took over my life and mostly it takes over my thinking. It's not, there was many years in my life when it didn't look like I had a problem, but it's that mental obsession that just is so um, crippling and I don't live with that today. I am a highly productive person because I'm not... <laughs> lost and worried about my next bite or, you know, I eat six times a day now, but I don't think about it in between meals. And, you know, that's only uh, something that God could give me. Um, self-seeking will slip away. Yeah, I'd love to say that's 100%. I never have a self-seeking thought. That would be a big fat lie. But it is slipping away. It's slipping away. It's not gone forever. Um, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Um, you know, I don't have an outlook that is centered around me, myself, and I. I'm able to be a part of a community of people. Um, I'm a worker among workers at my job. That doesn't mean it's perfect. I mean, there's been times I my job was very difficult a few years ago. Um, I was supervising a bunch of women, and it was difficult, to say the least. But God brought me to it one day at a time. And through working this program and working with other people and learning how to, you know, contain and process my feelings as someone taught me in these rooms, how to um, not try to work out my problems um, through my own mind, that 
I have people that I talk to who have been through worse things than me. Um, I get out of myself all the time um, through helping others and sponsoring um, fewer people and of economic insecurity will leave us. You know, I'm not rich and famous, but I do uh, have a spending plan that, you know, we, we use loosely. I mean, I, I'm not um, rigid about my life, and I'm able to be responsible. I, you know, we joke in these rooms about how, you know, <laughs> we applaud the doing things, you know, paying our bills on time, like, you know, we're, we're doing such a great thing, and that's what, you know, normal people do. It's just a part of, matter of course. But for us who have been, you know, so reckless and, and out there with um, money and everything else, um, it can really be difficult just to do the basic normal things. And, you know, so I'm happy to say I'm, a, I'm, uh, I'm not afraid of the future with our finances. Um, and we will intuitively know how to, intuitively know how to handle situations which use tobacco us. Um, and that happens most of the time. I can't say that I am 100% perfect. I mean, I'm just not. And if I was, then I wouldn't need this program anymore. And, you know, God has shown me in my hard, in my, when I go through really hard times, I feel like God just gives me enough light for the step I'm on and just enough light to see the next action I need to take. But, you know, there's other times when all seems to be going, just coasting along. Um, I can't think of a time recently that it's been like that, just in living in a household with teenagers. It's, it's just hard to, you know, not be that way. But but living with teenagers has worked. Yes? I'm sorry. I heard something. Um has just helped me to see how immature I am and has really um, sharpened me to not act like a 13-year-old, which is pretty much my default um, if I am not in good spiritual condition. And so I have to stay in good spiritual condition on a daily basis. I have to turn my will and my life over to God every day. Um, Someone recently shared with me a different version of the serenity prayer, which is, um, God grant me the serenity to accept the one I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. You know, if I change my behavior, it's amazing how the problem I thought I had goes away. Um, and this is what... It says in the last promise, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that has happened a thousand times in the last 25 years that I have been able to get through situations that never in a million years did I think I would be able to get through. I just thought that, you know, from such a very young age of my life being so deceptive and so um, just 
spinning out of control and just these vicious cycles of, you know, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, five steps back. I just never, I just did not imagine that it would ever change and that I would ever have what I have today. It's, you know, 25 years ago when I walked into that LA meeting on River Road in Potomac, Maryland, or whatever city it's called, um, I did not think, okay, I'm going to be abstinent now. Okay, this is going to work. I really had no hope of changing. And that is where I needed to be. I needed to give up on myself and allow God to take over because with me in charge, my best thinking got me to 190 pounds. And I <clears throat> just know that my best thinking would do it again. So I follow the directions outlined in this big book. I work this program like my life depends on it. I'm very grateful with that I'll pass. Thank you, Katie, very much for taking the time to tell your story this morning on the phone meeting. And at this moment, we will open up the line for any questions that uh, listeners might have regarding what you shared or your program. Press star 1 to unmute if you'd like to direct a question to Katie this morning. Katie, hi. Good morning. This is Linda, and I'm in Virginia, and uh, I'm in Reston, Virginia, very close to you. Hello? Okay. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to make sure. And uh, you said that you started a meeting. Um, can you tell me where that meeting is? It, did you start this meeting here in Virginia where you currently live? Well, I told that story when I was talking about uh, starting a meeting. That was in Colorado. Oh, okay. Um, but we do, I do have a, a, a good OA meeting that I have here, but I, I live outside of Charlottesville. Oh, you, oh, you don't live in the, okay, the northern, okay. I live in northern Virginia anymore. Sorry. Okay, great. Okay, thank you. I pass. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other questions? Press star one to unmute. This is Karen. I'm calling from Denver, Colorado, and I just wanted to thank Katie for sharing her story. Um, I was part of that story when she lived in Colorado, and I'm just so grateful to hear you, Katie, today, and thank you so much for. Uh, for all the many things you know that you were in my life and so many others. And I wish you the very best on your 25th birthday. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Hi, this is Kathy in Boston, a compulsive overeater, and I want to thank Katie for the very insightful share this morning. And I wondered, um, as someone myself who um, is still struggling with uh, surrendering my will to God's will, um, 
I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you, over time, became more and more reliant on your higher power and less self-reliant. Thank you. Well, um, I think as I, for my, my experience was that I got into uh, situations that, um, well, it talks in somewhere in the big book about we will uh, be in situations that used to baffle us. And so I guess the, the thing is, is, is recognizing that God is helping me. Because prior to, um, to being abstinent, I didn't think about what I was doing. And I really believe that it's God that allows me to think about what I'm doing. Um, I'm painfully aware of my actions. And I say that in, you know, sometimes it's, um, it, it's painful. <laughs> But then I realized that it's God that is allowing me to feel that pain to change. If I don't, if I don't see how bad I am, I'm not going to change. And I have to see, you know, my, um, I used to compare myself with other people or compare myself to myself. And that's not the barometer that I'm supposed to be living under. I'm supposed to be seeking God's highest good, not, not just, you know, well, I'm better than, than so-and-so, well, I'm not as bad as her, or, you know, just my, my thinking has completely changed. Um, so I don't, um, but the only way I can do that is just to keep seeking God, and, you know, it talks in uh, the big book about you know, expanding our spiritual life. And, you know, that means um, pursuing the religion of your choice or of your upbringing. You know, people go back to what they were brought up with. If that's not, you know, something that they could ever relate to, then they then they seek a spiritual connection. Um, so that's my experience. Thank you, Thank you, Kathy, for the question. Janice, go ahead. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you very much for taking the time to tell your story this morning. Um, I can so relate to many parts of your story and, and that place where you say, are you constitutionally incapable of being honest with yourself? And thank you especially for going through the promises. Um, I, I really could... Uh, just relate so much to what you were talking about. What I would like to know is, um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with sponsorship and with working your fourth step and and how that came about? Thanks. Okay. Um, well, I sponsor three people right now, um, and. Uh, the way I do that is going through, um, well, they've, they've all been absent for quite a long time, but, um, but when I started out, um, I have them do um, reading and writing from the big book and the 12 and 12, going through the first three steps, and then um, 
going through the four-step as it's outlined in the big book. Um, you know, and, and I, my practice is to read and write every day, and I, I share that reading with my sponsor every day. I don't, you know, store it all up for some big catharsis down the road. I, um, I share my writing every day, and that is what my sponsors do. Um, so, you know, for maintenance, and that's, you know, something that um, I would have gone on more about if I thought about it, is that, you know, maintenance really is, is so different than what um, I ever imagined. Um, it's not easy to, to maintain the same weight and to, you know, to get past that whole dieting mode. And so, you know, now um, working the staff is, I think, come up. And they do come up. I live in the world. I live in, you know, people. I like things to be black and white, but people are gray. And, you know, different things have come up at different times, and I've had to work through the steps on those issues. And the way I do that, for the most part, is in reading and writing. So I'm thank not you sure very if that much. answers your question. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Because I, I, if I could just say that, you know, I am not one who would naturally do that. Um, I was very afraid of it. Um, and it always seemed I would get these sponsors who had a PhD, and I just felt like an idiot with my little secretarial school education. And you know, that is why it's so important for me to do it every day. And, you know, I mean, it's funny because I feel like I've learned how to read in the room, you know. I I couldn't read out loud very well, and now, you know, I can read out loud. <laughs> and, you know, I was, a, I was ashamed of the way I wrote, and but doing it every day, you know, keeps has developed that muscle. And I'm able to be honest because I'm I'm much more honest in writing than I am um, if I if, especially if I just let something spin around in my head. But if I write about it, I seem to get to a different level of awareness and honesty than if I just talk about it or um, think about it. So now I'm done. Okay. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Janice, for the question. Any other questions, press star one to unmute. Hi, this is Amy. Hey, Amy, good morning to you. Good morning. Just want to say, Katie, congratulations on your 25 years. It has been a joy. It's hard to do this without crying because you've been a friend and uh, for 25 years, you know. And it says here in Working with Others in Chapter 7 of the big book, it says, life will take on new meaning, to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, see a fellowship grow, grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not miss it. Well, for 25 years, Katie, that's what we've had. You know, we've had a fellowship grow up about us. We have true friendships. We have helped others. You have helped others. You have helped me. You have helped so many people, Katie. 
so many people. And it's been a joy. It's been a joy to watch. And it's a fellowship, an experience that we don't want to miss. And I can hear in your voice when you share about what it's like now. That this is an experience, recovery, experience, recovery, to be recovered from a seemingly hopeless situation, a hopeless disease, but to be recovered and to have a life that goes beyond our imagination, where we have a purpose, where we can help others, you know, not die from this disease. You know, we have been put on a new plane where we have friendships and fellowships that we could have never imagined and that we can have a purpose to share with others now, you know, what it is, you know, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, the beautiful life that we have now. And I've been honored and privileged and grateful to share that with you for the last 25 years. Thank you for being a great example and a great inspiration. And without pass. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. True, true. <laughs> if I might add, any other questions for Katie this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Teresa from DC. Yes, go ahead. I just wanted, I don't have a question per se because I'm pretty sure that Katie's already answered it and, and I'm sure I've heard the answer many times. But as I was um, listening to the share, um, I wanted to thank Katie for her hope. Like, I'm just wondering what it would be like to live the next 25 plus years in recovery. Um, I have been in um program for almost six years. Um, I have been hearing the positive message of the big book um, since I first joined the coffee shop a few years ago. I've been on a vision for you since day one, yet I still struggle. And on our meetings, I've, you know, we've been hearing about Jim and hearing about Fred and been hearing about all the hard-headed people. And I, and I started to wonder, I, I really do wonder if recovery is not for me. Maybe maybe my destiny is to be, you know, one of those people who struggle so much that, you know, I'll be one of those cautionary tales, like, don't be like her. Um, she didn't get it, and she could not get it, um, because it's a daily, daily stumble and struggle. You know, one day I got it, and the next day I don't have it. And, you know, I really have been thinking, well, maybe I'm just not supposed to get it, you know. Um, and and then I listened to the share this morning about, you know, finally getting it and keeping it and then having it for so long. So so now this morning I'm wondering, well, maybe I can have the rest of my life not be a struggle and, and be a reliance on God. And so I'm just grateful for that, that seed that was planted because I'm really feeling hopeless and really because I've tried everything and um, and have a lot of shame around this. Um, and but keep coming back to hear messages of hope, but it's it's hard. It's really hard. Um, 
But thank you for sharing your story. I appreciate it. I pass. Well, thank you. And I just, you know, I told someone, um, you know, as much as part of me was nervous to share because I want to impress, you know, I want to please the people, the regular people on a vision for you, the leaders, and, and, you know, be a good speaker. It's like, you know, really my whole purpose is to give hope that I was, and yet, you know, all I can tell you is that I did not, which I did say already, I did not leave that meeting on Wednesday, October 7th, 1987, thinking, this is it. I've got it. I've got it now. You know, I used to... Prior to that, I would make announcements about my new diet or my new food plan or my new whatever, and I was humbled, and I was humbled into silence about what I was doing in terms of family and friends. I did not announce what I was doing. It was, um, but not in a secretive way. I just felt like I needed to, uh, to just work this program and do what I was told but not with any um, declaration that this is it because I really did not think, I didn't think that it would, I, it would ever happen for me either, but it did one day at a time. One day just became two and on and on it went, and, but I did not expect it. Thanks. Thank you. Anyone else? Press star one to unmute if you'd like to ask a question of our speaker, Katie, this morning. Going once, twice. Three times. Okay, I, I assume all minds are clear. Katie, once again, we offer our congratulations on your 25th anniversary, and uh, thank you so much for coming to the line and offering a message of hope, of possibility, of what can happen uh, through the experience of these pages. This, these pages, these first 164 pages, takes all of us on a spiritual experience where we can have that transformation and have that spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. And that's exactly what your story illustrated for us this morning, and we thank you. All right, I'm going to close the meeting this morning with uh, a reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. 
We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.